All right. Good morning, church. It is great to see you. If you've got your Bible, open it up to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be. And uh, there's no shame if you need to look at the table of contents. Um, But if I can help you, um, if you just open to the middle of the Old Testament and get somewhere near Psalms and Proverbs, those are um, two pretty large books that are easy to find in the Old Testament. If you get there, just hang a right. Um, Isaiah will come right after the poetical books. Um, So Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Right after Song of Solomon, the first prophetical book there is Isaiah. So if you get close, um, hang a right and uh, you'll find it there. But um, as we turn there, let me give you uh, just a couple of uh, things that we want to put before you. And then we'll stand and read um, the scriptures and uh, we'll dive in it together. Um, One of those is that... um, Starting in January, uh, we're going to have one service, which is great. We're excited to gather as one body and one family and uh, fellowship together, worship together, uh, really start to to work our way to being a healthy biblical church family that gathers together and worships together and serves one another and all of those things. And then we're going to have equip classes before the service from 9 to 10, and then we'll gather in here at 1015. Um, And that's for adults, uh, men, women, students, kids. Uh, We're all going to get really creative with our space here and uh, gather together because we really want men to be around the word together and women to be around the word together and uh, students are going to hear the word and all of those kind of things to all of us uh, might mature and be sanctified and um, be conformed to the image of Christ together. Um, But one of those things that we want to remind you of and just lay before you is that as we start those, um, we still need some help um, in our children's ministry. So we want a place for your kids to be able to go during those classes So um, historically at High Point to serving kids, um, you would essentially sign the dotted line and commit until Jesus returns. Um, We're not doing that anymore. Um, um, And I I don't, you know, uh, that is funny, but at the same time, um, we have some incredible people. Many of you are in this room because you just served in the first hour that made that commitment. And uh, we love you for that. Um, But as we shift kind of how we're doing ministry, um, we're going to turn that commitment into a semester-long commitment. So um, during the 9 o'clock equip classes, we need people to commit to a semester. Um, So maybe that would be you. If you would say, hey, as we launch these classes and those kind of things, we're happy to not jump in the first round so that we can be with the children during the 9 o'clock hour. We would love to talk to you because we still need volunteers to do that. And our prayer is that our entire church body takes on the ownership of discipling and growing and shepherding and caring for the children in this body. So um, if this isn't your round to jump in and serve during the nine o'clock hour, your round is coming. Uh, We're going to come and and talk to you about eventually jumping in there for one semester and uh, sharing some of the the burden of uh, discipling our children. So, but we're praying that some of you might say, hey, we can miss out on the first go round of classes and we can jump in with the children from nine to 10. Um, and you know, it's only an hour. It's not even two hours like, uh, many of those used to be. So, um, if you can jump in and do that, that'd be great. And then, uh, as we all gather in here at 1015, we're still going to offer kids for, um, birth through kindergarten. And uh, our hope is that all of us get on a rotation to where that's a once a month commitment. Um, so where you're not missing church consistently or missing the gathering consistently, but our hope is that we get enough people to say, Hey, you can put me on a rotation for the 1015. And uh, then you're serving once every month or once every six weeks or even, you know, less frequently than that if our whole church kind of takes that burden um, together. So want to lay that before you. Please consider it, especially if you're a member of our church family. Um, consider how you might um, carry some of that burden with us. Um, but we're going to jump into a series 
um, an Advent series, and uh, the word Advent uh, means arrival or coming, and uh, it's not um, prescribed in Scripture um, that every church should stop and celebrate Advent, but it's just a way that the church historically has stopped to be intentional um, about the weeks leading up to um, what we celebrate being the arrival of Jesus Christ. Uh, We want to be intentional about it. We want to take some time and uh, really make the most of these weeks as we celebrate the fact that he came. Um, It's fascinating that some of you, if you're a guest in here, if you're an unbeliever in here, you're like, why are you celebrating something that's already happened and looking forward to something that's already happened? Uh, We do that because one, it's already happened and it's good news that we'll never get over. But two, the fact that he came the first time is a promise that he will be here again. And as we look back and celebrate Jesus's first coming, we also look forward during this season and celebrate the fact that he will return one day and he will come to um, rescue his bride and uh, present her holy and blameless before the Lord and uh, for all eternity. So that's what we look forward to. And we're going to take some time and uh, look at these different names that are given to um, Jesus in Isaiah chapter nine, um, verses six and seven. So we're going to stand in just a second and read those. Um, but it's so fascinating that many kings in Israel, of all the kings that would come, um, no king in Israel would be given names like this. Um, Israel didn't really ascribe different names to their kings, um, but we see that this child would be a king and he would be given these names, um, identifying that he would not be like any other king that Israel had ever seen. He would not be any king like this earth had ever seen. Um, But these attributes that we're gonna talk about would be divine attributes. So if you'll stand, we're gonna read a couple verses in Isaiah and then uh, I'll give you the context. Our goal this morning is to give you the context of Isaiah chapter nine and then um, talk about the fact that Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Over the next couple weeks, we will look at mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. But today we're we're gonna do half our time in context and then we'll spend the second half um, looking at the fact that he is our wonderful counselor. So let's read this together and then we'll invite the Lord um, to shine over these next couple minutes. But it says this in Isaiah chapter nine, starting in verse six. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. Father, we invite you um, to make your name great. Um, God, to, for your will to be done, for your kingdom to come even more during these next few minutes. Um, God, you lead your people by your word. Um, you don't lead your people by human voice. Um, you lead your people by your word written, by your word incarnate in your son. Um, so God, you tell us in John that your sheep know the sound of your voice. Um, So God, lead us once again by your voice and by your word. Um, Conform us to the image of your son as we behold you um, in this passage. And it's uh, to the glory of your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So to give you some context to the book of Isaiah, um, Isaiah is writing in a very interesting time in Israel's history. Um, If you know some, I know we've, we've reviewed this a couple times in kind of the, the life of our church. We've looked at kind of the overall story of the Old Testament. Um, but Isaiah shows up and starts writing um, long after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were given this promise of a covenant that God would establish his people and that through um, these men's descendants, he would bless the earth. He would bless them and their nation that would become Israel and he would bless the earth through them. 
Um, after Israel starts to multiply, they become enslaved in Egypt and God, 400 years of slavery later, God raises up a deliverer named Moses and he frees the people from their bondage and their captivity. And then we see this era of the conquest where Moses dies because the people sin and they um, forsake what God had done and they turn to lesser things and God punishes them by wandering in the wilderness. They don't trust him as he leads them into battle. And uh, they get to this place called Kadesh Barnea and they send spies into the land and the spies report back and they say, hey, God's led us out here to die. There's no way we're gonna make this. And uh, so they don't trust God and God punishes them and the older generation dies off. The younger generation grows up and Joshua is meant to lead them into the promised land. And we see Joshua do that. After Joshua um, kind of invades the land and takes the land back for the nation of Israel, we see this era of the judges where um, there is no king. Um, the, the common theme in the book of Judges is in, there, in those days, there was no king. And uh, the last verse in the book of Judges is very telling. It says, in those days, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king, there was no leader. Everyone did what they thought was right. And the book of Judges is probably the most R-rated book in the Bible. Um, some of the worst things you could read um, happen in the book of Judges. And at the end of the book of Judges, the people look to Samuel. He's one of the last judges, and he's going to transition. They, they go to him and say, hey, we want to be like all the other nations. We want a king. And Samuel's like, okay. He hears from the Lord. They're going to establish uh, Israel into this kingdom. And he's like, all right, God will pick a king. And the people are like, no, 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 no. We want to pick the king. Uh, we want our king to be like all the other kings. And they pick Saul. And Saul is handsome and, you know, meets all of the marks according to what the world would choose in a king. And uh, Saul was one of the worst kings that Israel has ever seen. Forty years later, um, Saul's reign ends and God says, I'll pick a king. I'll show you a king. And he finds this shepherd boy out in the field um, who was a man after his own heart. And he says, David's going to be the next king. David rules for 40 years after Saul's 40. David has Solomon. Solomon rules for 40 years. After Solomon's reign, his son named Rehoboam is in charge, and uh, Rehoboam has this fatal moment in his kingship where um, he's got a choice. Um, the Israel had just, it wasn't perfect, but it just experienced 40 years, 80 years really, 40 of David's reign, 40 of Solomon's reign, um, where times were sweet and they weren't perfect. As I said, the people were still sinful um, because that's what people do. And, but, but there was a sweet season of the kingship and Rehoboam takes charge after his father Solomon and he's got a choice where he can listen to his younger advisor buddies who are like, hey, we need you to crack the whip. We need you to really ramp up you know, the strictness and the heaviness of your, your authority and your reign. Or you can listen to the older men, the older advisors who knew the kings before you, who knew your father, who knew your grandfather, and they're like, hey, I think you need to show some grace here. I think you need to back off a little bit. And Rehoboam essentially says, hey, you thought they were strict. I'll show you strict. And the kingdom of Israel splits in two. He doesn't listen to the advice and the wisdom of his older counselors. He listens to kind of the foolishness of his younger friends. And the kingdom of Israel splits in two. And you've got 10 tribes of the 12, of the 12 tribes of Israel, 10 of those remain in the north and uh, they are still called Israel. And then you've got two tribes that go to the south and they are called Judah. And during this season, after the kingdom splits, um, you move into more of the prophetical writings. The rest of the, the writings of the Old Testament are the prophets that God raises up during this season to call the people to repentance. Turn back to the Lord because as the, a consistent theme of the scriptures, our hearts are prone to wander. And the people of Israel, whether they're in Israel in the north or Judah in the south, 
They continue to sin. They forsake the Lord. They forsake his counsel. They forsake his wisdom and their hearts wander. And God is constantly raising up these prophets, these people to speak the word on behalf of God to call the people back to repentance. And where we find ourselves in this moment is uh, about 931 BC, the kingdom splits. And about 200-ish years later, about 700 years before Jesus would come, um, Isaiah is writing on behalf of the Lord, calling the people back to repentance. And God would raise up um, different people. In the northern kingdom, he would raise up, about during the time of Isaiah, he would raise up Amos and Hosea to call the northern kingdom back to repentance. And he would um, raise up Isaiah and Micah in the southern kingdom to call the southern kingdom of Judah back to repentance. And what's kind of ironic about this is this is one of the final calls from God before his judgment is about to come. That this is one of the last calls. In fact, we'll see as we give some context, we'll read a couple verses in chapter eight. Um, We'll see that this judgment is imminent. That God has promised his people That, hey, if you don't heed my word, judgment is coming. Oftentimes when we read in scripture about the flood or when we read about um, the exile, as we're about to see in just a few minutes, uh, we often tend to think that those were just sudden moments, that the people were blindsided, that the people of God had no idea those were coming. And that could not be further from the truth. God sent prophet after prophet, spokesperson after spokesperson. God was very clear that if you don't turn back to me, I am a holy God, I am a just God, and I do not put up with sin. I don't entertain sin. And God constantly called his people to repentance. Hey, if you stay with me, if you remain with me, if you worship me, then I will bless you and keep you. But if you turn from me, and if you build for yourself idols and worship created things, I will be faithful to judge your sin. I will. And maybe they didn't take him seriously, but this was the promise that God had made all throughout the Old Testament from the time of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30 and 31, when God gave this law to Moses and established his covenant with the nation of Israel that had just been freed, that he would be their God, that he would rule them by his law. He said in all the way back in Deuteronomy, if you turn from me and worship idols, I will exile you from your land. I'll take you from your land. The inhabitants, your neighbors, your enemies will come in. They will take you into exile and you will no longer dwell in the land that I've given you. He promised it then and he promised it and he warned them. He was incredibly gracious and merciful and patient with them all throughout the Old Testament. So this wasn't a, they were victims of this. They didn't see this coming, that this was a shock to them. No, What's so true then and so true now is God was faithful to speak to his people. The problem wasn't God being clear enough. The problem was the people wouldn't listen. It was true then. And is it true now? You better believe it. God has been very clear in his word. The problem is not God's communication to us. The problem is our ability to listen to God and what he has spoken in his word. But he's raised up Isaiah to come and speak to the people. And if you read the first seven chapters of Isaiah, it's very clear. Turn back to me. You are like an unfaithful bride and lots of other words that God chooses to use. And he says, turn back to me, come back to me, repent and turn to me and I will forgive you and I will keep you. And we'll see in chapter eight, as we look at a couple of these verses, that over and over again, God would warn him, warn his people of his judgment towards sin. And we want a God who is holy and does not entertain sin. We long for a God who calls what is truly evil, evil, and doesn't put up with it. The problem with that is if God is going to deal with evil, 
we've got to turn the mirror around and look at ourselves because all of us fall short of the glory of God and all of us are evil. So yes, we cry out for God to punish evil, but at the same time, some of us are hoping that God would be just and the justifier, that God would somehow make the unjust just. And that's what Romans tells us our Lord is. He is just and he is faithful to punish sin. He will never let a single sin ever committed in the history of this life go unpunished. It will all be punished. He is just, but he's also the justifier. But we're about to to see some warnings and some promises of God's holy and right and just justice, his wrath towards sin. And he promises that in the first seven chapters of Isaiah, but he also promises it very specifically so that the people would not be caught off guard of what's going to happen. He tells them it's imminent. He names the country that's coming to take the northern kingdom very explicitly. If you look, we'll just kind of skip through chapter eight for context. Um, the, The chapter opens with this prophetess who's going to have a child. And if you look at verse four, it says, for before that boy, before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So he says, hey, before this boy is able to speak, and able to cry out, father or mother, the Assyrian king is going to come in and take the spoil of the land. So we know that the nation of Assyria is God's chosen instrument to come in and pronounce his judgment on the people. And it's going to happen very soon. If you look at verse seven, it says, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria. There it is again. And all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep onto Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap all your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Such a fascinating passage. So we learn from just these couple verses that the Assyrian king is going to be God's instrument, the the nation of Assyria. They're gonna come into the northern kingdom, but we also see that it's going to affect the southern kingdom, that this wrath, this judgment is going to seep into Judah. It's gonna work its way down there. And then we also see the prophet Isaiah calling out and says, hey, strap up because you're about to be shattered. Armor up because it's not going to be good because God does not entertain sin. Strap on your armor and be shattered. He even says, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. You better start collaborating, but it's not gonna work. And then it's interesting that he says, for God is with us at the end of that, right? What a message. Hey, everything's about to go bad, for God is with us, right? And that's a message you don't wanna hear if you're the northern kingdom of Israel. The prophet is saying, hey, I know this is gonna be true because God is with me. God is speaking through me and judgment's coming and God is in it. He is done putting up with your sin. He is merciful and just and has given us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And we see that judgment is coming. Verse 21, and then we'll move into chapter nine. It says, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So we see as dark as it gets is the end of Isaiah chapter eight. 
Judgment's coming, repent, turn back. The people don't. And he says, judgment is on the way and it is intimate. Here it comes. And even in the midst of judgment, even when sin was at its worst, we see that God is just. And if we turn the page or maybe just look at the next paragraph in chapter nine, we see God being just and the justifier. We see God being just to punish sin, but also merciful towards his people. That God made his people promises all throughout the Old Testament of his covenant love towards his people that he will not fail to come through on his word. Although all throughout the, the, the story of the Bible is the story of covenants and how over and over again, humanity failed to meet their end of the covenant. And God says, I made a covenant promise with you and I will not fail to meet that covenant. And we see God judge sin, but we also see God be merciful. And in the middle of darkness, in the middle of sin, when all hope was lost, we see the promise of hope. And if you want to know what the Christmas story is in a nutshell, why we get so excited about this season is because that's the Christmas story. In the middle of darkness, in the middle of sin, when all hope was lost, a child was born. God spoke hope into the universe. God stepped out of heaven and came down to earth to punish sin and also to be merciful and gracious and redeem sinners. And we see both of those worlds collide in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, where God would punish sin and Jesus would go to the cross for sinners and he would also pardon sinners and he would forgive them and be merciful to them. So in the middle of the darkest part of Isaiah, we see this promise. If you look in uh, verse one of chapter nine, it says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. And some of you are like, what does that even mean? And why is that hopeful? Um, let me tell you what some of this means. Um, the lands there um, of Zebulun and Naphtali were some of the two most northern places in the northern kingdom of Israel. And in fact, um, long before the Assyrians, the Assyrians invaded um, Israel in the northern kingdom, they started to intermarry with the northern kingdom. Um, this is where uh, this race, this kind of half-breed race called the Samaritans came from. This is why they were hated so much by the Jews, because it was the Jews intermarrying with their enemies and creating this half-breed race. Um, that you see that um, long before Assyrian invaded, you've got this issue where God's people are turning from him. And often when God, um, when his people entered into the promised land, he gave them rules. He said, don't intermarry with the foreigners. Don't worship their gods. And he knew that if you intermarry with them, you'll start worshiping their gods. Don't turn from me. And what do the people do? They disobey all three of them, right? They start intermarrying. They don't wipe out all of um, the land they start to intermarry with the foreigners. They start to worship their pagan gods and uh, they disobey everything that God told them to do. And we see these northern places, Zebulun and Naphtali, they were some of the northernmost places in Israel and they started to intermarry with the Assyrians in creating this um, place called Samaria where this half-breed group of people would live. Um, and this is why they were hated so much. And you see here, that it was a place of contempt. There will be no gloom for her was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. 
which that's an oxymoron. That's an ironic term. We'll talk about it in just a second. So how does God take this land that was hated, this section of Israel that was disdained because it was full of Samaritans? How does God make this into a formerly contempt but now glorious land? Well, if you think about it, when Jesus was born, um, Jesus was rejected in his hometown. John 1 tells us he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Other places in the gospel, it says a prophet is not welcome in his own hometown. That they would see him and be like, wait, this is Mary and Joseph's son. There's nothing special about him. And Jesus couldn't even perform miracles in his own hometown. So where did he go? He went north. He went to places like Cana and Capernaum and Samaria and he did his miracles and taught and showed all of his humility and love and generosity and sacrifice to those northern regions of Israel. He took this land that used to be a land of contempt and he made it into a glorious land. And then the prophet calls it the Galilee of the nations, which is so fascinating because Galilee would instantly refer to the Jewish people, but then of the nations, that word nations there in the Septuagint is the word ethnos, which means Gentiles. It's the Galilee of the Gentiles. It's where you see Jew and Gentile come together. He would redeem this place. He would make it a glorious place. And we also see a couple of other things. Verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Is it appropriate, church, for us to refer to Jesus as the light? You better believe it. That in the middle of darkness, in the middle of our sin, in the middle of a world full of sin, the light has come. And he says right here, this Isaiah, in the middle of pronouncing God's judgment, he says, the people who have walked in darkness, they will see a great light. And who is that light? It's this child who would be born, as he will prophesy in verse six. Um, but John, as he starts his gospel, and he writes about Jesus, the eternal word of God, I just wanna read to you what he says. Um, about Jesus. It says this, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God and his name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. But he was not the light but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son of, from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's why we get so excited about the Christmas season, is because the light has come, the light of the world, to offer the true light to all mankind, to anyone who believe in him, believe in his name, they would be called children of God. This is why we get excited about Christmas, that this light was prophesied 700 years before Jesus would show up. Isaiah takes pen to paper and says that there would be a light who would come. This child would be born, would be a light. The people who walked in sin, the people who walked in darkness, they would see the light. And in John chapter eight, Jesus looks out at a crowd and he says, I am the light of the world. And he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
And then Isaiah goes on in verse three, he says this, he says, you've multiplied, excuse me, you've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil, which is interesting. He just promised that judgment's coming. And now he's talking about that um, this nation's going to multiply and the harvest will be um, growing and that there will be spoil. What is he saying here? Is God, was God lying about what he's going to do? No, that he's prophesying to this future day where there's going to be a day coming really soon before this boy can say mom or dad, judgment's coming and the nation will be diminished, but it will not be burned out. We see that the Northern kingdom would eventually never make its way back. They would be swept up into exile and they would never return. The Lord would put out their light. But what does God do? He promised us all the way back in Genesis 3 that he would preserve the seed of the woman. And we see that God, although Judah would be brought into exile later into Babylon, they would eventually, by God's grace, be able to return. God would preserve the seed. He would preserve the the genealogy um, from the woman, ultimately to Jesus Christ. And who would Jesus be? The lion of the tribe of Judah. God would preserve this southern kingdom, this tribe, so that his Messiah would come and be born, that he would be a light to all men because God will not fail on his word. He promised in Genesis 3 that the descendant of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And the story of the Old Testament is God preserving this seed, preserving this descendant all the way up until Jesus was born. And we see that although this nation would be in turmoil one day, the nation would multiply once again. Although the harvest is about to be really sparse as Assyria comes in and makes its way with Israel, one day they will experience a harvest again. Although Israel's literally about to be Assyria's spoil, spoil just meaning prize, plunder. When you come in a nation, you take all the spoil you want. Israel themselves is about to be a spoil. But the prophet Isaiah says one day they will divide the spoil again. They will get to enjoy the blessings once again. This child would one day come. He would bring an end to all wars. He would establish an eternal kingdom based on his justice and his righteousness and his holiness. How's he gonna do that? Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. He will break down the rod of his oppressors. And the the prophet Isaiah recalls um, the the place of Midian. Um, If you remember in the book of Judges, I believe it's chapter 6, do you remember which character is involved in the the story of Midian? I'll give you a hint. It rhymes with Midian. Um, It was Gideon. And Gideon, um, by the power of God, by the strength of God, by the word of God, comes in and makes haste on his enemies. When it seems like there was no way he would, God shows up and by his power, you see Gideon have a swift victory. And the prophet Isaiah says, it will, just, it will be just like that. This child will come. And one day his people will experience the spoil. They will experience the blessing. They will experience the harvest. Although God will be just to punish sin, he will also be merciful to bless his children. How will he do all of those things? Verse six, in the form of a child. For unto us, or for to us, a child is born. This is how he will do it. That word for there means an explanation. Here's how it's going to happen. A child's gonna be born. Here's how the light's going to come in the person of a child. And I love how it says a child will be born. 
that Jesus did not show up as an adult. He very well could have. He did not show up as an adult king. He did not show up, you know, at 33. He showed up as a child. Why? So that he would experience every single facet of our broken humanity so that he could be our high priest who would be able to empathize with all of our weaknesses. That he experienced everything from the birth canal to human death and every human reality in between. That he would be our perfect high priest who would be like us in every way, yet without sin. And he was born into broken humanity, became a child, being human just like us in every way, from human birth to human death. And then he says this, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will do this. And what we want to do, now that we've got the context of what's happening here, is uh, spend a couple of minutes um, looking at the fact that Jesus is our wonderful counselor. And over the next three weeks, we'll look at mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So that phrase, wonderful counselor, um, literally in the Hebrew construction, it means wonder of a counselor. Um, and we use the word wonderful so many ways. Um, you know, we, if we have a good meal, we're like, oh, that was a wonderful meal. That was a wonderful movie. Um, and our English word wonderful just means pleasant or nice or enjoyable. Um, that does not capture um, anything close to what the word there means in the Hebrew. Um, the word there in the Hebrew is the word pele. Um, and we don't use it like we do today. We're just, you know, trinkets and nice things and meals are wonderful. Um, this word actually means um, that it's high and above us, that it's transcendent, that it's so marvelous um, that we can't comprehend it. This is what he's getting at here. Uh, multiple times in the scripture, um, when we see David cry out in the Psalms, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go to escape your presence? He says, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to Sheol, you're there. Um, he says, I can't escape you, God. And he says, such knowledge is too Pele for me. It's too wonderful to me. I can't attain it. That I can't comprehend your presence. I can't comprehend your bigness. I can't comprehend your power and your glory and your majesty. That's what he means by wonderful. That it's incomprehensible. That his wisdom, his counsel would be incomprehensible to us. That we would never attain it on our own. We would never figure it out on our own. It is too high and too wonderful for us. In Genesis, when God goes to Abraham and promises him that he's going to have a child. And Abraham is 85. And he's barren. He and his wife can't have children. And Abraham just starts to laugh. And God responds with, are such things too wonderful for me as your God? Are they too incomprehensible are they too unfathomable for me as the eternal God, maker of heaven and earth, speaking the world into existence and I can't give you a baby? That would be too wonderful for me. And you see Abram, Abraham humbled and uh, 15 years later at the age of 100, God would bless Abram and Sarai, or Abraham and Sarah with a baby. No things are too wonderful for him. And we see that Jesus would be called a wonderful counselor, that his wisdom, his counsel, his knowledge, his ways would be incomprehensible to us. He will explain to us the eternal truths. He will reveal to us the very mind of God. 
He will instruct us about God, the universe, creation, right, wrong, sin, redemption, and everything else in between. Concepts that we would never come to the realization left to our own flesh and our own devices. That Jesus literally is the wisdom of God revealed. He's the wisdom of God incarnate. He has come to reveal the eternal wise plan of God to save sinners. How does God reveal that? In the person and finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. That he is wisdom of God in flesh. And church, we live in a world that is absent of human wisdom. We do. We live in a world that longs for God's infinite wisdom. it's, It's nowhere to be found. When you think about our culture, when you think about the unbelieving world, when you think about those that are lost, um... Scripture would, I would make the case that we live in a Romans 1 world. And in Romans 1, Paul actually says um, in verse 22, he says, claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is the world we've found ourselves in. The unbelieving world, uh, we love to claim to be wise, but man, have we become foolish and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. If you want a summary of Romans 1, Paul says that um, God has made himself known to us. He has made himself very clear to us that in creation alone, God's divine attributes and his divine power have been clearly seen and clearly knowable. But what have we done? What has humanity done? What has this culture and this lost world that we live in done? We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We said, no thanks, we don't want God, we don't want the creator, we want the creation. We'll worship ourselves or worship created things. We want the creation rather than creator. And what's so ironic about this is this is my story. This is your story before you came to know the Lord. We look for infinite satisfaction in finite things. We look for infinite satisfaction in our hearts in the next promotion, in the job that we have, in the relationship that we might want to get in, in earthly success, in attributes, in accolades, in money in the bank. We look for to finite things to give us infinite satisfaction. It's Romans 1. We don't want the creator. We'd rather just settle for the creation to try to satisfy our souls. And we suppress the truth about God in our unrighteousness. And what has happened? Therefore... God has given our world over to the lust of their hearts, the dishonoring of our bodies, and a debased mind. That this is the world we find ourselves in. And why, we have to ask, does the world say, no thanks, we don't want the truth about God, we'd rather worship ourselves, because the message of the cross and the message of the gospel is offensive. It's offensive. If you've been walking through our Christmas devotional, Um, We started looking at Good News of Great Joy by John Piper. Uh, We're on day four, I believe. Um, Don't spoil it if you've read it already. Uh, Elizabeth and I read them at night, so I don't want you to spoil it. But if you read the first one, what is um, the first devotional about? it's, It's the idea that Christmas is an indictment before it can be a delight. If the Savior is coming, first you have to admit that you need saving. To embrace the cross, first you have to admit that you need the cross, that you're a sinner, that you're a wretch, that you're broken, that you're deserving of God's wrath and his eternal punishment, that before Christmas becomes good news to you, it has to become bad news. Whoa, I am in sin. I am deserving of judgment. And until we embrace the truthfulness of the gospel message and the offensiveness of it, that we are deserving of God's just and holy and right punishment towards our sin, then the, bad, or the good news will never become that great. 
If the bad news is not that bad, then the good news is not all that great. And Christmas is God just coming to give us a hand and a couple of principles for our lives every week instead of saving us from eternal death. Christmas has to be an indictment before it can be a delight. And our world does not want to receive the fact um, that we are deserving of God's judgment. The message of the cross is offensive but before it becomes glorious. And that's part of the gospel message. It's the part that we often leave out. Our world hates that message. We're fine with Jesus just being a cool teacher, a nice guy, an awesome rabbi, but Jesus the Savior means that I need saving. And Paul would write in 1 Corinthians that the word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, to those who are lost. That the world looks at that message and says, wait, you need to tell me that I'm wrong? That I'm in need of saving? That I'm a sinner? And they call it foolishness. And I don't want to belittle you either um, because if you look at scripture, yes, there is fundamentally something incredible about every single one of us. According to Genesis 1 and 2, every single one of us is made in the image of God. God has put his stamp on us. He's given us the ability to think and reason and worship and love and cherish things that no other creature on the earth can. We are made in his image and that gives us dignity and value according to Genesis 1 and 2. But according to Genesis 3, there's also something fundamentally broken about us and that's sin. That you and I, are, we have sin in our nature. We are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. And we need saving. And a message like that is foolishness to the world. It's offensive. Our world doesn't look for honest truth. They just look for affirmation, right? I've talked to so many young adults, people I went to college with um, that aren't believers, that have left counselor after counselor because they were trying to tell them hard things. Our world today isn't looking for truth. It's looking for someone to just to affirm who I already am. Affirm who I think I am. Affirm what I feel. Affirm what I believe in the moment. And claiming to be wise, we have become fools. It's the best way to put it. By the divine author himself. Pursuing all of the knowledge that this earth has to offer. And man, do we look to things to try to save ourselves. We look to education, we look to academics, we look to knowledge, we look to science, we look to pleasure, we look to religion. No amount of any of those things will fix this fallen planet. They just won't. They can't do it. No amount of earthly knowledge, of earthly pleasure, of earthly satisfaction will ever fully and finally satisfy your heart or save your soul. In fact, I've found in my life when I keep depending on my own earthly experience and knowledge, and turn from the word of God and try to do things my own way, I just fall deeper into darkness and sin left to my own devices. It will not work. Left to our own wisdom, we would never discover God, we would never see God, we would never choose God, and the Christmas story is that we didn't find wisdom, wisdom made himself known to us. In a world that would never seek after God, would never run after him, Romans 3, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks after God, in a world that was totally content in dabbling in mud pies, as C.S. Lewis would say. Wisdom himself took on human flesh and God has made himself known to us. And that's why we love the Christmas story because wisdom came running after us and revealed himself to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have an unbelieving world who, does, who desperately needs the wisdom of God. But I would also argue this morning 
and this is where I'm not trying to step on your toes. I'm, I've stepped all over mine this past week. Um, is we have a church, um, not a building, not a brand. I'm talking about the, the universal church is desperate for God's wisdom as well. We are. The people of God, are, the wisdom is desperately needed in the church. And uh, one of the things we were talking about this week is most of our, our meaning believers, uh, most of our decision making um, isn't really between right and wrong. Now, we always will struggle with our flesh and fight against our flesh, and we will have to make decisions between right and wrong. Um, but by and large, as believers, most of our decision-making, there is, there is plenty that has to do with right and wrong, but a lot of it has to do not with right and wrong, but with wise and unwise. And we need the wisdom of God in our lives, not just to save us and to reveal God's wisdom in saving sinners through Jesus Christ, but to sanctify us, that we need God's wisdom. And boy, do we live in a world where believers turn to everything else but the word of God in the wisdom of God for their wisdom. And we're trying to find the latest podcast and the latest leadership workshop and the latest book to read and all of those things. Meanwhile, forsaking literally the wisdom of God spoken by him in a book. We have God's very wisdom in these pages. And like I said, it's not between right and wrong. I'm not hating on podcasts. I listen to them too. I'm not hating on books. I read them too. But if those get in the place of you going to the fountain of wisdom, wisdom itself, then they're not helping you. They're hindering you. The only earthly wisdom worth its salt is the wisdom that points us to the word of God. So like I said, I'm not saying don't listen to them. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm gonna keep listening to them. But if they start to hinder me being in the word of God, wisdom itself, then I've got to make some changes. They're not sinful, but it's what is wise and what is unwise. We live in a world where I don't know if a lot of people see Jesus as their wonderful counselor. They see the latest book they read or the latest podcast they listen to or their friends as their wonderful counselor. And if we believe that if Jesus to us is just this distant deity who's done some supernatural things to save us, but he's not a personal, wonderful counselor and savior to us daily, then we will look to so many other things for wisdom. But the gospel is not just that Jesus wants to be your Lord and wants to do these incredible things and has done these things in Christ, but he's also a, he's, he's, he's all powerful, but he's also insanely personal and wants to know you and walk with you and dwell with you and counsel you in every area of your life. And be your wisdom and be your counselor. But man, do we forget that in this word is all the wisdom we, we need for a life of godliness, but specifically wisdom on how to love our wives, how to cultivate a home that honors Christ, how to raise our children, how to have integrity in our relationships and in the workplace, how to manage our finances, how to release anxiety, how to overcome temptation, how to leave a legacy, how to reconcile, how to make an impact on this life or in this life that will last for eternity. But man, when I get online, when I enter into the digital space, every single thing you find is just advice after advice after advice about how to be a little more productive, how to be a little more efficient, how to be a little more successful, how to get a little more percentage points on the bonus, how to finish off the year a little. It's just productivity to, to what end? If we don't have the wisdom of God telling us how to lead our lives, how to lead our families, how to follow after the Lord in the workplace, how to make our lives count for eternity and something that's going to matter in the end, to what end? 
And I would argue that the reason we don't seek God's wisdom is the same reason the world doesn't. It's because it's offensive. Because God's word will always beat up against my fleshly desires. It always will. It will always be the harder road. It's a narrow and difficult road. And God's wisdom will always battle against and go directly against my flesh and how I wanna spend my time and my money and my life and all of those things. It will always bump up against it. It's never gonna be the easy way out. This word is never going to instruct you on the easy path, the shortcut. This word's never gonna be the sweep it under the rug option. It's never gonna be the option that's in line with my earthly agenda, my wants, my comforts. It's always going to be the costly and sacrificial option. It just is. It's always going to be the path of responsibility and sacrifice and humility. And boy, does my flesh not like that. So I would rather open up my phone and find the next productivity tip on Instagram than seek the word of God for him to sharpen me and conform me to his image so that I can make a difference for his glory and his name in my day. And this rubber hits the road. It gets real. And my wife and I are having these conversations. We had dinner with an awesome family in our church last night and we're having these conversations that, like I said, it's not between right and wrong. <clears throat> it's between wise and unwise. And we're, start, I'm, I'm just giving you an insight into our home. We're starting to have those conversations. How many nights is too much that we're on the ball field or that we're in practice? And like I said, sports aren't bad. None of that's sinful. But at one point, is it unwise if our goal is that our son comes to hear the gospel regularly and hear it from us as his parents? At one point, is that not wise? If he gets the scholarship, but he doesn't know Jesus, scripture would call that foolish. And like I said, I'm just letting you into my life. I'm not preaching at you, but I think you all can resonate with these realities because we all wrestle with what's wise and what's not wise. How many commitments do I need to be involved in to the point where I'm not connecting with my wife anymore? If I'm great reputation in the community, but I go home and there's no intimacy with my own wife, scripture would call that foolish. It would. And we're having to ask all these conversations. And sometimes I step back and I just look at our life and I look at all the commitments we've made and we've got to ask, is this wise according to scripture? Am I using our calendar and our time to, to the glory of God and to accomplish what we feel like he wants us to accomplish in our neighborhood, in our lives, in our marriage, in our home? Or am I just a victim of my own calendar? So many times I look back and just look back at the last month when we weren't intentional about this and, and we look like an octopus on roller skates, like tons of movement, but no forward progress. We've committed to all of these things, but when, when we sit down and look at each other in the eyes and say, what do we want most for our family and our marriage and our son? None of it moved us forward in that direction. And all of us find that tension, that issue of between wise and unwise. In church, this is where we get our priorities right. This is where we get the boldness and the wisdom to make the decisions that we need to make, to follow after the Lord and to seek his wisdom daily. How much time you spend at your job isn't a sin issue, but it's a wisdom issue. If it's hindering you from being the husband or the wife or the mother and father that you need to be to your children, to the glory of God. We need to ask these questions and we need to seek his counsel. 
It is wonderful, it is good, it is right, it is true, and it will keep our eyes focused on him and what matters and what's gonna matter most in the end. Is he your wonderful counselor? The question of the morning is where have you been seeking counsel from? Is it the word of God or is it something else? It doesn't mean that something else is sinful, but is it wise? Is it pointing you back to the word of God and the work of God? Is it wise to have all of the accolades and all of the trophies and all of the different things that this world has to offer if we do not know the Lord and walk with the Lord. Scripture would call that foolish. And it's the the issue, my son's not even here yet and we're wrestling with this already. Are my wife and I establishing rhythms and patterns and priorities to where when he gets here, um, that that the heartbeat of our home would be that he hears the gospel and he sees that mom and dad love one another. I can't say with full integrity before you that we're there. We're not. We commit to a lot of things. And we're like that octopus that's just moving around. And so many times I look at my calendar and I'm just a victim to the things I've said yes to. Instead of seeking the wisdom of God to dictate my life. So, I know there's a lot there. And we could talk about that. I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit. I'm not the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure that he's revealed some things to you. Um, But more importantly, what we wanted to highlight this morning is God has illumined his infinite wisdom that will save us, but that will also sanctify us and sustain us every day. And it is in this word. Where are you seeking your counsel from? Where are you getting it from? God has revealed in his words to people who are walking in darkness, people who were paying no attention to him. He has revealed the wisdom of God and incredible truths like who he is, why the world was created, what's wrong with us, what did God do decisively about it, how did he redeem the world, how do we receive this grace, how will the world end, concepts like God, man, sin, redemption, fall, grace, all of those have been made very clear in the scriptures and that's the Christmas story. In the middle of the darkness, there was a great light. And so many of these truths are just incredible. And the more we think about them and read them, the more I'm convinced that we would never come up with this on our own. They are too high and too wonderful for us. Some truths like um, the fact that it's more blessed to give than to receive. My flesh would never come up with that, ever. According to my flesh, I would always think it's better for me to be receiving. And so often do I, right? Truths like the last will be first and the first will be last. Truths like when we are weak, that's when we're actually the strongest because his strength will shine through us. Truths like to be great is to serve. Truths like that the exalted will be humbled and the humbled will be exalted. You know this to be true. Go home today and exalt yourself in front of your wife. Tell her how awesome you are and how successful you are and watch how quickly you're humbled. But go home and humble yourself and serve and rebound for your son or throw the ball in the front yard and watch how quickly you're exalted when your name comes up in front of him or her. That's my dad. Humble yourself and watch how quickly you you will be exalted. I would never come up with that in my own flesh. It is only the wisdom of God given to me that would ever experience that. Truths like, True freedom only comes when we surrender to his law. Truths like the victorious soul is not the one that acts like it has it all together, but the truly victorious soul is the one that's broken and contrite and repentant. 
That's when you actually experience victory. Truths like to die to our sin is where we truly find life. We see all of these truths in the gospel. Jesus is the wisdom of God revealed. This infinite eternal plan that the God of the universe would go hungry so that he could feed his children. That the God of the universe would grow weary so that he could offer us rest. That the God of the universe would be called a demon as he's casting out demons. That the God of the universe would be king of heaven and earth, but would pay taxes to Caesar and earthly governors so that one day we could worship the king of heaven and earth. That the God of the universe would be sold for 30 pieces of silver as he gave his life as a ransom for many. That the God of the universe would never turn stones to bread to feed himself, but he would give his life as bread, broken, so that we might experience the bread of life. That the God of the universe would die the death of a sinner to save his people from their sins. Church, you cannot write this. You cannot come up with this. It is the eternal, wise plan of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we didn't attain it. We didn't earn it. We didn't work for us. Isaiah says unto us, a son is given. Because we didn't earn it, we could never earn it. And the wisdom of God was given to us. So what's our response this morning? If you're a believer, or if you're an unbeliever, um, our prayer is that your first response would be to consider the gospel. That the psalmist writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And some of you, that's our prayer is where you would start. True wisdom, it starts with fearing the Lord and coming to know him as your Lord and Savior. And if you don't know him, we would gladly spend however long we need to spend after this service. We'll dismiss and you can come down and we would gladly share with you about the gospel. For the rest of us, where have you found your counsel? Who is your counselor? Is it a certain app? Is it the productivity podcast? Whatever it is. Is it replacing the wonderful counsel of the word of God? Psalms 119 verse 18 says, open my eyes to that I may behold the wondrous things in your law. James chapter one says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God and he gives it freely to all. He will give it. Wisdom has made himself known. If you think about some of the great literatures ever produced, Shakespeare comes to mind and uh, Shakespeare wrote many things. Uh, One of his greatest was Hamlet. And if you think about it, there is no way Hamlet, as great as he was, as great of a figure as he was, there's no way that Hamlet would ever get to to meet Shakespeare. Hamlet gets to, to live in a world that has Shakespeare's hand all over it. His entire existence is dependent on Shakespeare, but in no way does Hamlet ever get to meet Shakespeare unless Shakespeare writes himself into the story. And that's the good news of Christmas is that the author of the story has written himself into the story so that you and I might know him and walk with him and he would lead us and counsel us and guide us by his word. You and I get to meet and to know and to dwell with and enjoy with and spend time with and pray to and talk to and worship the author of the story. He has written himself in so that you and I might know him, that the wisdom of God would be revealed to us. The infinite has become an infant. The creator took on his own creation. The one who holds the world in his hands would be born into human hands. The maker, he has made himself known. So the question is, do you know him? If you don't know him, we'd love to talk to you about knowing him. If you do know him, are you walking with him? He will guide your every step. 
He was faithful and wise to save us by his grace and reveal that plan to us. And he will be faithful and wise to sanctify you and sustain you if you walk with him. So Lord, that's our prayer. God, open our eyes to the wonderful works in your law. God, help us to be a people that have been saved and redeemed by your eternal wisdom. God, what a plan that God himself would go to a cross and die for sinners. God, only you in your magnificent and majestic ways come up with that plan. And that's what we celebrate. That's why you are the name above all names. That's why you are worthy of all praise, that God himself would step out of heaven and die in the place of sinners so that sinners might be able to dwell with God forever. God, thank you. Our only response is worship and affection and adoration for you. That's what we celebrate as we look back to the first Christmas and that's what we look forward to as we think about your second coming. That the wisdom of God will return and will consummate and bring an end to and redeem and restore all things as you promised. So God, thank you for your arrival and we look forward to your coming once again. In the meantime, God, help us to live according to your counsel. It is wonderful, it is right, it is true, it is pure. It enlightens the eyes, it makes the wise simple, it rejoices the heart, and it is righteous altogether. All glory and honor and praise goes to you. In Christ's name that we pray, amen.